The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Um... Our scripture reading for this morning is in First, Ch- First Samuel, excuse me, chapter eight. Um, there are some Bibles that are scattered among um, underneath the chairs. Uh, if you would like to join along in one of the Bibles, it's on page two thirty, um, and then continues to two thirty one, and it will also be behind me on the screen. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. And the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And now we're going to skip over to uh, verse 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there should be a king over us, that we may be also, excuse me, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing in our series, uh, in, spite of, in Spite of Us, the story of God and his people in 1 Samuel. And uh, today we're in chapter 8. And just to give you a very quick summary of where we've been, uh, Israel was at a very dark time, sort of like his medieval ages, his dark period leading into the book of Samuel. The end of Judges, which is the period of time preceding this, it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then Samuel comes on on board in a pretty miraculous, amazing way. And God speaks to Samuel for the first time that someone has spoken to a leader in Israel for a very long time in a, in a prophetic way. And he, he, people start to hear that. And, and it leads up to last week, the last chapter, chapter seven, that Jonathan covered where uh, Samuel, as the judge of the whole nation of Israel, leads Israel in a nationwide revival of repentance, where they repent to the Lord for all the ways they've turned away from him. And in the middle of that, God miraculously delivers them from the Philistine army, which is about to attack them, without them raising a single sword, without them actually having to uh, go into battle uh, and with their own weapons, God defeats the Philistine army, which has been uh, just a, t- a terror to Israel for generations now. 
And so now Samuel, we see here in chapter 8, the time has fast forwarded and Samuel is no longer a young man. Now he is an old man and he has been faithfully serving, faithfully judging Israel for years, for decades. And now as he's old, he makes a mistake that many uh, older men do and he wants to carry on his name to his children. And so before, judges in Israel had never been chosen by heredity. In fact, they, when they approached Gideon, who was one of the judges, they said, hey, make your sons judge and, you, uh, and we'll make you king. And they'll pass down. He says, far be it from me. We'll have no king. I will not, will not go to pass down that way. God would raise up a judge at the right time for Israel, someone that his, the spirit would be upon and he would lead, he or she actually would lead Israel in, uh, in a crucial time in their history. But Samuel decides he's going to pass it on to his sons. And he passes on to his sons like a lot of godly men for some reason. We don't know the story. His sons are not good guys. It's kind of weird how this kind of echoes the, his mentor, Eli, who uh, was not a great guy himself, but his sons were even worse than he was. And Samuel's sons, they pervert justice as judges. They accept bribes. And is the people of Israel see this is not going in a good direction. And so they pull Samuel aside at his hometown. And the elders, the leaders of the people of Israel, approach Samuel. And they say, here's what we need. You are getting old. That's not something anybody ever likes to hear. Somebody already called me old this morning, but I'm not saying any names who it was. Kate said, uh, but I already feel old, so it don't, that's not telling me anything I don't already know. But nobody likes to be told that you're old and that your time has passed, which is what the people come to Samuel and say. You're old and your time has passed. Old man, it's time to, to pass the baton to somebody else. And it can't be your sons because they are bad news. And so here's what we want. We want you to make a king over Israel. We're done with you, Samuel. You need to sit down. Your time's over. Make us a king. In fact, not just your time is over. Don't pass it to your sons. And let's not have any more judges like you are. Give us a king so we can be like every other nation around us. And Samuel responds to that request, that request or that demand, as we're going to see, in two ways. One way is kind of understandably, as an old man who's given decades of service to the nation of Israel, uh, he, he's hurt. And we know that he's hurt because we, when he is praying to God, God says, he, they haven't just rejected you, they've rejected me. So Samuel was feeling rejected, which is kind of understandably, right? He's hurt, he feels rejected by these people that he's giving his time and energy and life to. But also we see another interesting response. It says that this saying, verse uh, 6, this request, this thing displeased Samuel. Now that wording in the original language there is stronger than just saying it displeased him. It's saying that this request was evil in the sight of Samuel. This is to Samuel an evil request. And God's response to that is, they haven't just rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. What God is saying, what we're going to see this morning, is that this problem, this issue that they're coming to you with, Samuel, is not a new problem. This is a continual problem. That is the, it is the continual problem of not just Israel, but all of us, all of mankind, and not just mankind in general, but each and every single one of us. It's a continual problem with humanity, with each and every human being. Here's going to be prayerfully our takeaway by God's grace. This is our big point this morning. Until Jesus alone is king, 
We will serve lesser kings who will demand less yet take more. Until Jesus alone is king, we will serve lesser kings who demand less yet take more. And we're gonna get there in three steps. We're gonna see this in these three steps. Number one, we're gonna see the sinful desire for a king. We're gonna see number two, the tragic rejection of a king. And third, God's gracious gift of a king. The sinful desire for a king, the tragic rejection of a king, and God's gracious gift of a king. First of all, the sinful desire for a king. So the people come to Samuel and they have this request. We're done with you. We want, another, we want you to make a king over us so that we can be like everybody else. And Samuel says, this is an evil request. It displeases him. He's not just hurt. He says, this request that you're making is an evil request. It's a sinful request. And he goes to God and God sees it the same way because God says, hey, Samuel, don't feel bad. They're not, they're not just rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king over them. And then the, but the response that God makes to that is pretty interesting when you consider the fact that God had already made hundreds of years before an allowance for Israel to have a king. When Moses was writing the book of Deuteronomy, which is his, uh, his sort of goodbye, farewell address to the people of Israel, he says this in chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, which is where they are now, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, now let's see if this sounds familiar, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now this is what he says in verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over, over you who is not your brother. So God had even told before that, he had told Abraham that out of Abraham was going to come kings. And then in Deuteronomy, when they're getting ready to go into the promised land after Moses dies and Joshua leads them in, Moses says, when you get into the promised land, you're going to ask for a king and that is okay. So if that is true, if kings were going to come from Abraham and God said, whenever you get into, into the promised land and you ask for me to make a king over you, that is okay, what was the problem? The problem was God had made an allowance for the people to have a king over them, but it was an allowance to a sinful desire. God made an allowance for the people to have a king over them, but it was an allowance to a sinful desire. See, since the people had been delivered from Egypt, since Moses had led them out of Egypt, they had been led not by a, a man, even though Moses was the leader, they were led by God. Moses never had a title. He was never king, he was never regent. He ruled the people, but he ruled the people because God empowered him to do so. And after Moses, he would raise up men like Joshua and Gideon and judge after judge who would lead the people as God would empower them to do so. But God was leading the people through them. God himself retained the title, retained the honor of being king over his people. 
They've been ruled by God directly. Israel is what's called a theocracy. That's where they didn't have a president. They didn't have a legislator. They didn't have a monarch in charge. They had God in charge of their political system, at least in theory. In reality, God's people, though he was always king over them, God's people were always and continually in rebellion against him. We see that whenever he tells Samuel, verse seven, and the Lord's God said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now listen to this, verse eight, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that so all, they are also doing to you. God says, ever since I called them my people, they have continually done nothing but rebel and reject me over and over again. And Samuel, this rejection that you're feeling, this disappointment that you're feeling, this sense of displeasure at the sinful request that they are making that a man would rule over them instead of me, this has been what my people have done from the first time I called them my people. In fact, even before that, back to the garden when Adam and Eve lived in perfection, they said, we don't want you to be ruler over us, we want to rule ourselves. It was the temptation that came to Eve and to Adam through the serpent. He says, so did God say to do this? He knows that if you take this fruit and eat it, then you're gonna know good and evil, and then therefore you're gonna be like him. And he's jealous of you being like him, and that's why he won't allow you to do this. This desire, this pride, this desire to rule ourselves. We see it all throughout history. We see it in ourselves, don't we? If you're honest with yourself this morning, that we have this desire, this rule for from the time that we first have consciousness to rule ourselves. And if you don't remember that, then just look at your child or your friend's child. They have the desire from the very beginning to self-rule, to self-determine, to be their own boss. We don't want anybody to impose their will upon us. We don't want our parents, we don't want our spouses, we don't want our bosses, we don't want government to impose its will upon us and tell us this is what you have to do. Don't you feel that sometimes? Like, so uh, Meg and I have this thing where, uh, you know, usually I'm pretty a stickler, I'm pretty, uh, pretty much a stickler about like a stop sign. You stop at the stop sign. But every now and then, particularly in the, the stop, that stop sign right around the corner from my house in my neighborhood, nobody's ever there. And I'll just kind of roll through it sometimes, and Megan will look over and give me a look like, your children are old enough now to know that there's a stop sign there, and you didn't stop. And you know what? Stopping there wouldn't really change my day that much. The extra two seconds it takes would not really affect whether my, the, my experience of getting home, which is literally like a hundred feet away. But honestly, I don't want the government or whoever put that stupid stop sign there to tell me that I have to stop when I can see my house from that intersection. I, I felt this in myself, this is embarrassing, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, for some reason, the, the speed limit in my neighborhood is 25 miles an hour. 
25 miles an hour. And we have a long neighborhood. And I was going slightly above 25 miles an hour. It was probably about 30, 32-ish. And I drove by this man's house and he looked at me and, as I, and he could tell, he probably sits out there and, and judges everybody as they come by, but he could, he could tell I was going above the speed limit. And he starts flashing with his fingers, two, five, two, five, looking at me. And I wanted to park the car and go punch that old man in the face and tell him, look, this is my neighborhood too. I'll go 32 miles an hour if I want to. I have rebellion deep in my heart and I don't want anybody, government, my spouse, a boss, a board, anybody, a parent to tell me to do differently. We want to rule ourselves. And the thing is, every single entity I just named has a rightful claim to demand of us. If you're married, your spouse has a rightful claim to demand certain things of you, to be a bare, barely decent husband or wife. The government that is placed over us has a right to demand things of us. Pay your taxes, go this speed limit, don't do this, do this. Our parents Even our children, our responsibility that we have to them, our bosses, they all have rightful claims over us, but we want to be self-governing and self-determining. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do or how to do it. We feel the, the hair bristle on our neck when that happens. But especially not, if we don't want our spouse, our parents, our government to make certain demands on us, we certainly don't want an invisible God who, make, who doesn't just claim partial obedience and partial allegiance, but complete and absolute allegiance. The government doesn't care whether I really like going 25 miles an hour or not. They just want me to go 25 miles an hour. God cares about my heart as well as my exterior actions. He claims more and higher allegiance than other powers and other authorities do in my life. And if I don't want those visible, understandable authorities to demand from me, I certainly don't want an invisible God whose ways I don't always understand. It doesn't make sense. This is not the shortest way from A to B, God. I know I can make this happen if you will let me pull the wires and the strings. But he says, no, this is the way I've called you to live life. And I don't want to go his way. And when we can't find a way to rule or govern ourselves, then what we want to do is we want to find a way to be ruled or governed by someone who is like us. And that's what's happening here with Israel. God, if you won't let us rule ourselves and at least give us someone who is like us, someone who is in our own image, someone that we can touch and feel and understand because that person would be somebody who thinks like me. There are these somebody who, who can understand whenever I say like, so Israel never kept a standing army. The only wars or battles that they fought were defensive army, the defensive wars or battles whenever they were being invaded and God would raise up a 
an authority or a judge or a warrior who would lead a, a, a put-together army to take on the foe. And God said, what you have to do in this is you have to trust me that you will be safe and I will take care of it. And they said, that doesn't make sense to us. At least if we have a king, we can talk him in to having a standing army so that way we can feel safe and protected. We want somebody who thinks like us, someone who we can touch and someone who we can manipulate and, and make, get them to make things happen. If I have somebody who's in charge of me who's like me, then there's a chance I can get that person to do what I want them to do when God refuses to be manipulated. Ever notice that? Ever try to get, had to manipulate God to convince him, hey, I'll do this and this and this if you'll do this. If I do this and this, you have to do this, God. And he just like, he is totally unfazed. He's unfazed by the request. He's unfazed by the little temper tantrum that we throw after he doesn't do what we want him to do. God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. He will not be manipulated and he will not be mocked. And we do not like that. Just like the people of Israel, we have a sinful desire for a king other than God. And if it can't be ourselves, it may as well be somebody like us. That way we can make things happen the way we want them to happen. So we see them, they have this sinful desire and this request, which we're gonna see is actually is a request in a bit for a king. But then we see that this is even more than that. This is more than just Adam and Eve uh, just taking and eating and us just wanting to go our own way. What happens, the, the flip side of us, of us doing our own thing and wanting to be self-ruled or get somebody who rule us is like us is that we're not just trying to rule ourselves and be king, but that if, if I am king or somebody else is king over my life, then what I'm doing is I'm rejecting God as king. There's no, there's no two people sitting on the throne of each of our lives. There is one person, and it is God or it is someone else. And when we choose ourselves or some other way, we are saying, God, I don't just want to rule myself, but I'd like for you to sit on the sidelines, please. He said, they're not, Samuel, they're not just rejecting you as king. They're rejecting me, which is what humankind has done over and over and over again. And so Samuel, as he takes this request to the Lord, the interesting thing that happens is he tells, listen to the answer. So it's a sinful desire to have another king. God says, even by them asking to have another king, they're rejecting me as king. But this is what he tells Samuel to say to them. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Now, verse nine, he says, now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God says they've requested this. They're actually demanding this of both you and me. And I want you to give them what they've requested. Now, this is a theme we see over and over in Scripture and over and over in our lives that plays out over and over again, where we 
make a sinful request or demand to God, and God sometimes gives us exactly what we ask for. In the face of and in spite of warnings, the next set of verses, the next paragraph, is Samuel's warnings to the people of what them asking for a king, how this is going to play out. And it sounds a lot like me talking to one of my children about what will happen if they do this. <laughs> Please don't disobey me on this, because if you disobey me on this, then this and this and this is going to happen. What the kid doesn't know is it doesn't just inconvenience them, it, it terribly inconveniences me. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, verse 11, these will be the ways of the king. Now listen to the key phrase in all of these uh, things that he says. He says, he will take, the king will take, will take, take your sons and appoint them to be his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his offerings Officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. God tells the people through Samuel what the marks of having a king will be. What will having a king over them, an earthly human king, means in them. And the big theme through it all is that the earthly king is going to take from you. And isn't that something that we experience in our life? Like we decide, like God, I got this. I know you say for, I should do this or I shouldn't do this. I got this. I think I'm the one person in the history of the world who can uh, figure out a, a different result to this. To this, and so I'm going to go proceed and go ahead. And don't we end up finding out that rather than finding freedom there and self-rule, that it continually takes and takes and takes from us. And the thing is, it's so opposite of what it means to be ruled by God. God had ruled his people and he had done nothing since calling them his people and bringing them out of Egypt except to give and give and give to them graciously over and over and over again while taking nothing from them. Abraham was totally undeserving to be God's chosen one, God graciously made him his covenant partner. 
Israel continually as a tribe and then in Egypt and then as soon as God leads them out. Think about all the, they're, they're within sight of Egypt where they were enslaved, standing before the Red Sea and they're already moaning. And that will be Moses' experience through the whole wilderness ordeal, the people moaning under God's leadership, even though he graciously gives them freedom, he graciously gives them deliverance, he graciously gives them food, he graciously gives them water, he graciously gives them a land, he graciously gives them, in fact, he gives us all the air that we breathe and the sun that comes up and the rain that falls down and the fact that food tastes good and is not repulsive, the fact that there's so much joy to life, he gives us all of that in addition to all the other things that he gave his people and yet they decided that to be under his rule was not worth it. They wanted their own way. They did not care. They ignored the warnings just like we do over and over and over again. And why? Why would they refuse the kingship of God over them whenever he had done nothing but to give and give and to give graciously, graciously, graciously. It tells us in verse 19, 19 through 20, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. What, they, what they're saying is, look, uh, you misunderstood us, Samuel. This was not a request, we are demanding a king. We are not leaving here today until you agree to give us a king over us. And why? That we may be like all the nations. The people of Israel were tired of being different from all the other nations on the earth. The nations that surrounded them, that continually marauded them, and the, th and the thing that they miss is that the reason they were sitting ducks for the nations that were surrounding them was not because they didn't have a standing military. The reason they were sitting ducks is because they had turned away from the Lord and his protection was not over them like it was when their hearts were turned to him. They were reaping the results of their own rebellion. But they were tired of being unlike the other nations around them who have a king who lives in an amazing palace and has an army at his disposal. And they would look at these other nations and say, look at how great his palace is. Look at how big his army is. They must be stronger and better and more favored than we are. And we're tired of being different than everybody else. It would be much easier, God, to judge success and failure if you would let us be like everybody else. And that's what our desire is as human beings, too. We want to be able to judge success and failure like the people who aren't God's children around us. And they judge success and failure very, it's very easy to tell, right? Nicer car, bigger house, bigger yard, nicer neighborhood, better job, better clothes, better looking, more fit, more obedient children or no children, or they travel more, they are smarter. Look at all the letters that are behind their name. It's very easy, whatever way that you want to judge, it's very easy to judge success and failure by the standards of the nations or the people or the world around us. And God says, I don't judge success and failure the same way, and that throws our mind off. Because what God has called us to do as believers is not, he, he has not called you most likely to be famous. 
He's not called you most likely to be incredibly, incredibly rich and successful. There's some people, yes, but just by numbers, it's probably not you and me. He's not called you to be infamous. He's called you to be faithful. He's called you to be the the son or the daughter, the brother, the sister, the friend, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband, the wife, the parent, the employee, the citizen, that he has called you to be right where you are. And he doesn't judge success or failure by your bottom line or your house or the neatness of your yard or how much you can bench press. Thank the Lord. He judges it by how faithful you are with exactly what he's put in your hand, exactly where he's put you. But they were tired of not being like the other nations. They said, we wanted a king so we may be like the other nations and that he may judge us. This is easy. They they wanted a king, a judge, a leader over them that would provide a clearer power structure. And if you have a clear power structure, you have a man who's in power, he's in the capital city, and he lives in his palace, then I know if I want access to power, I know how to get access to him. I can find some way to get access to him and get him to do what I want him to do. But it's not so clear when God is king over us. They wanted a king over him that he may go and fight before us and fight our battles. They want they wanted clearer, visible security over them. They rejected God as king because to follow him is to be different than every other nation and every other people on the earth. And they, judged, they deemed it as being too different for them. And we are tempted continually to do the same. They wanted to succeed like the other nations around them. They wanted to use the same means that the nations around them use for power to their ends. They wanted to use the same ends as everyone else to get there, to security. Because what they're really looking for, they're looking for security, they're looking for identity, they're looking for influence, they're looking for value. That's what they're looking for as a nation. And we are tempted to do the same thing individually and as a people. I don't wanna be different than everybody else around me. I don't wanna do business differently than everybody else around me. Nobody succeeds in my field if they're honest in this way. Nobody succeeds in my field if they follow the rules, if they don't cut corners. Nobody succeeds, Lord. I've got to do this if I'm going to succeed. I don't wanna do business differently. I don't wanna find a mate differently. I know that you say that it has to be somebody who loves you and who is godly. I know you say not to sleep with them before marriage but how can I know if I'm compatible? How can I hook them? If I don't find a way to pull them in that way, I don't wanna find a mate differently. I don't wanna manage my finances differently. It doesn't make sense. If I give you 10% or more of my income, how I'm going to live on that? I don't want to, I don't wanna, how can I even think about giving to other people or overseas missions or to help people? I I can't even make the ends meet as it is. I don't wanna manage my finances differently. Differently. I don't want to relate to my spouse differently. You don't know God. If, if, I don't, if I don't pester him, if I don't 
if I don't manipulate her, she's not going to do what I need her to do, or he's not going to do what I need him to do. If you tell me to take my hands off and to submit or to love them sacrificially, what if they don't love me back? What if they don't give me what I need in return back? I can't do that. I can't let go of that. I don't want to parent differently. It feels too exposed. It feels too iffy. The nation of Israel didn't have a standing army. It felt too, they felt too exposed, too iffy. God, they can come in and sneak attack us and we won't have any way to return to conquer them. Because what God's calling us to do in that is to rely upon something or rather someone who is unseen. And we would rather trust in what we can see and feel and touch and smell than the one who, though he created the heavens and the earth, is unseen. I'd rather call the shots. I'd rather let culture around me call the shots. We're tempted to do that individually, and we're tempted to do that as a group as Christians. Politicians want to treat Christians in America like a voting block. And we say, we'll, if you vote for us, we will give you in exchange access to power. And we fall for it over and over again because we want a king like everybody else. We want a leader of our political group like every other political group has and we want to use, we're tempted to use the same means as every other group uses to get an end that we think is just and right but if you use the wrong ungodly means, it does, you never reach a godly end. Never, ever, ever. And when we do that, we've rejected the kingship of Jesus and accepted a king like all the other nations around us. And at that point, we're better, we're better off, well, we better beware of what we call American Christianity at that point. Because it's being morphed into something else if we serve another king who will give us access to power instead of the king. Jesus claimed the title of absolute king for himself. His followers professed him as king. Many, many have died for that. Yet Jesus, and this is incredibly interesting, Jesus didn't pursue a political, a cultural, or a militaristic revolution. His followers were always begging him to do so. And it would have made a lot of sense at the, t at the time. Rome was the most powerful country, most influential country on the face of the earth. And to rule Rome was to affect decisions upon scores of countries, hundreds of cultures, and millions of his people. But here's the thing. Jesus' followers weren't revolutionaries. But they were revolutionarily counter-cultural. They followed the king in his example. They didn't clutch to power. They didn't scrap for security or cling to influence. They didn't take. They gave the way that their king gave. They found in Jesus's invisible, ever-demanding reign, in that reign, they found the strength and the security, and the identity, and the favor, 
to press on no matter what. It was a different end and a different means. It was radically and is still radically countercultural, both as a goal and as a plan to get there. We see the sinful desire for the king. We see the tragic rejection of a king. And lastly, we see God's gracious gift of a king. Now, here's the real crazy part of the story, if you're following along. They ask with a sinful desire for a king like everybody else that will give them power and influence and security and favor like all the other kings that they see around them. And it's a sinful desire, a sinful demand of God and Samuel, and yet God gives them the king that they asked for. God gives their, he answers their sinful, rebellious demand for a king. And here's what will happen. Just like he says, the king is a heavy burden upon Israel for the whole time of their rule and reign. And the kings, on top of that, continually fail over and over again. Every single one, even David, who stands as the, we're gonna see soon, who stands as the the high water mark of kings of Israel, even he fails spectacularly. Yet it was through this line of the sinful, rebellious kings that God gave an answer to a sinful, rebellious request or demand from the people. It was through that line that a king would come. A king who would be like us. A a king who would be incredibly relatable. A king that we would have incredible access to. It would be the God king who didn't come to take, but he came to give. Think of what our king said whenever he came as a human. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He would take the sin of his sinful subjects and he would, in exchange, turn us, his sinful, rebellious subjects who always continually want to go our own way and rule ourselves, yet he would make us into a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of princes and princesses. Acts 17, 7, we see the effects of, start to play out by his believers. This is the mark of his early believers. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And that king we see in, at the very end of all things in Revelation, Revelation 11, 15, it's all through Revelation. Revelation 11, 15, and the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven and saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever 
and ever. Revelation 17, 14. Revelation. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's the king who's the true king. He's the God king. He's the man king. He's the lamb king, slain for his people. The question is, would you bow to him now? If you've lived your life in absolute rebellion against him, you might have grown up in church or you might have been running the other way, as far away as you can from him, yet still stiff-necked and hard-hearted and would not bow to him. Would you bow to him today? I pray he would soften your heart and give you the ability to. And the other question is, where in your life, if you are a believer, where in your life is King Jesus demanding allegiance in a place that you've been holding back. Let this be the day that we bow our knee to him and let our cry be, we'll have no king but Jesus. Until Jesus alone is king, we will serve lesser kings who demand less yet take more. No, let there be no king but Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.